Welcome to the Swim Swam Podcast. I'm your host, Coleman Hodges. Joining me today, Olympic gold medalist, gold medal Mel, Swim Swam co-founder, joining us today for part three of his exclusive Swim Swam documentary. At this point, we've got James Magnuson. <laughs> hey, guys. things are happening today that are historic and they're very important. Um, one, I've been on the phone. So first of all, the United States is like, do we have, we still have a country because as we are talking right now, the, the, uh, the Trump supporters have overtaken the Capitol and, and we, it, it appears that the United States is under a semi weak coup coup attempt. Did you, so did you like wake up and see this this morning, James? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I saw, we saw here in Australia, it's wild, like every day there's something crazy coming out of the US and we're kind of minding our business down here, just shaking our heads really. I'm, I'm, this, this weirdest things happen. All, all these friends are calling me up. So the last phone call I got was from Mark Spitz. He's like, hey, Mel, what's up? It's Mark Spitz. And Mark Spitz is seven time. He was the greatest Olympian of all time until Michael Phelps, but pretty cool cat. And he's like, so what's going on? He's like, we should do a podcast out in the Capitol because it's on fire right now. <laughs> but he, and I'm like, I'm like, Mark, I, I love talking to you. I gotta go. We're talking to James Bangson. He goes, Oh, I know James. He goes, Tell James hi. <laughs> he wanted you to know he said hi. That's awesome. That's so cool. Hi back to you, Mark Spitz. You're a legend. So I forgot where we are. Where are we? Where are we in the Magnuson? Oh, wait a second. We 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 got it. We got to do them solid. If you're on Instagram. And you're not following James Magnuson, go to at james.magnuson. At james.magnuson. And if you're not down with it, you got you to find out about his habitualequipment.com. This is the company that he that he's that he you launched it during the pandemic, right? During during COVID, right at the start of lockdown. So he's the smartest man in the world who launched this <laughs> this, this, this business so that you can get swole at home. Is that how it works? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, that's it. We do gym equipment for homes and gyms. Um, and it's a great time to get that set up because, you know, it's a weird world we're living in. So you gotta stay fit somehow. That's right. That's right. And you can see just how swole, how buff James Magnuson is. Um, as buff as you're getting, man, do you, do you like ever jump in the pool and like pop off a 25 or 25 meters, something, something just to see what, if you still got something there? Yeah, so I did a relay race with uh, my old swim team um, sort of early to mid last year. And it was a 10 by 50 meter relay race. So it's like a, a thing here in, in Sydney, New South Wales. And the prize for winning the relay is beer mugs, these big beer mugs. So it's very coveted. Um, and I went, I went 10th in the relay and we were just behind at the time. And I actually dropped a 21.4 split <laughs> long course or short course long course long course <laughs> what are you doing man are you you're like i've had an, i've had enough swimming i'm just gonna i'm just gonna swim for beer mugs now but i mean dropping times yeah. like that you could be thinking maybe don't swim for beer mugs maybe 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 swim for actual medals yeah and i hadn't i hadn't trained like at all and i guess like conversion rate it would have been 
probably one of the fastest swims in Australia that year, probably, you know, top 10, 15 in the world. But um, 50 freestyles, more might go now. The 100's is, too far. <laughs> is the gold mug, is it like, is it gold plated? What is it? Is this a good looking mug or is this like an ugly mug? What are, what are you racing for? Nah. No, it's just the normal. It's just the normal mug. Um, but actually, so the, the club I was swimming for at the time is an all girls school. But um, there's a few uh, guys in the sort of senior senior squad, senior group group of that. And in this ten by fifty meter relay race, we were racing an all boys school that does scholarships for swimmers. So it was like the all all girls school versus the all boys school, and it came down to the last leg. So I had to pull something out for the guys, or for the girls, actually. <laughs> yeah, so it's pretty cool. That is let's get, in, let's, let's get into it. Let's get into the history. Where did we, where did we stop? We stopped it. I think we were around <laughs> the 2013 World Champs just after that. Uh, yeah, just after that. And so, so let, let, yeah, let's bring it back to the narrative. You get back on top, you're a world champion in the 100 free again after after Barcelona. Um, I mean, and where do you go from there? Yeah, so it was a little bit of a difficult one because um, for me, Barcelona was about righting the wrongs of 2012, in, in my opinion, getting the things right that we got wrong in, in London, nailing that process, nailing that preparation and just proving that I was the, the premier sprint freestyler in the world. So it was a funny feeling coming off the back of Barcelona because it was like, right, mission achieved. Uh, you know, I'm back on top, but there's still three years to the next Olympic Games. And that was after Barcelona, there was only one thing left for me in swimming, and that was to win an Olympic gold, which is a little weird position to be in. But it was like, right, okay, you know, now we have to refocus on on the Rio Olympics, and and that 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 was kind of the only goal left. Um, so it was, it was a bit of a strange time, and we're in a little bit of a limbo with training. Um, you know, do you have a bit of time off after that? It was such an emotional high. It was a, a real emotional kind of journey to that World Championships, given what had happened in London, and I felt quite flat off the back of that World Championships. Um, and we basically didn't have any time off. We got straight back into training really hard and just refocused straight away on, on the Rio Olympics. So it was, it was a bit of a strange time. And I feel like in hindsight, we should have stopped and celebrated that achievement. But it, it felt like more of a necessity rather than uh, an, an achievement. It's like we have to win this World Champs. There's no two ways about it. We've got to get it done. I got the job done and then it was straight back into really hard training. So it was a little bit of a funny transition um, compared to what you would normally do if you won a world title and, um, you know, you'd probably sit back and take stock and celebrate and um, enjoy that moment a little more. 2014, we're in 2014. So you're yeah. coming off of 2013 World Championships and you're like, you, you hit it hard. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So... Sort of back into 2013, early 2014, uh, I basically, we went with this theory that let's race heaps this season. Let's go to every state championships in Australia. Let's go to all the cities. Let's do all these races. And in between, let's just train really hard. Keep training hard and keep racing and, and see what we can do. And I did something like... I want to say 14 or 15, 47.100 freestyles within 
probably a six month period. Just every time I got up and raced, I'd swim 47 point and it was crazy. And the, and the weird thing was, you know, I'd, I'd drop a 47, seven and the next fastest in the race would be like 50 point. There'd be barely anyone, anyone in the crowd. We're just going to random meets, just dropping 47 points. And we'd kind of, I'd get out of the water and everyone would be like, well, like, yeah, like another 47 point. And it was a really weird feeling. And uh, I was on such a roll at that point. Like, you know, I remember a couple of specific races. Um, I was I was single at the time as well. So it was, um, you know, a little bit of a, 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 you know, busy time in my life in terms of like, I was still partying a bit and stuff. And um, I remember one time we went down to Melbourne and I was out all night, the night before the 100 free. I mustn't have gotten home, um, you know, or gotten to bed until quite early in the morning. I get up the next day and uh, roll out, swim the heats, swim like 50 point, just cruising. My coach like put the rocket at me. The other boys who knew I'd been out all night were like, dude, like, you know, you've been swimming so fast. I was like, ah, oh, it's sweet. Watch this tonight. I rocked up that night and went 47 7. And I'd been out the whole night before. And everyone was just like, what the hell? This guy can do no wrong at the moment. <laughs> I think there should be an award for an accomplishment like that. What, what, there should be an unofficial award. That's like right? better than a world title. <laughs> yeah, it was so weird, right? And the year before, I'd won the world titles in 47, <laughs> seven, I think. I think seven. Six. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And this, and and it was kind of this weird flow I was in where every time I got in the water, it was just bam, 47, 47, 47. But um, there was no real peaks and troughs in my training. I was just working really hard, racing really fast, um, you know, enjoying myself at the same time on the weekends and stuff like that. But um, there, there probably wasn't a real balance in my life at that time. And it, it was... Um, it was strange because I was swimming so fast. I was training so well, but felt like I was accomplishing nothing. And, and it was, it was a, a really strange time for me. And that the only thing I felt that could really fulfill um, sort of that desire to win that I had was uh, a, an Olympic or an Olympics or a world championships. Like I had this weird feeling of no matter how many 47s I swam, no matter how many times people said, you know, that's crazy. I was like, ah, it just, I, I feel like it, it's not really an achievement at the moment. So it was a, a really strange time for us. And then I came into the, the Commonwealth Games. So we have a Commonwealth Games every four years mirroring the Olympics. Came into the Commonwealth Games trials. I swam all these 47s. I was like, I think I might break the world record here at these trials. And I swam, I swam pretty well in the heats in the finals. I felt really good. I was like, right, I'm going to break the world record. And in the final, I actually did one of those turns where you kind of miss the wall and you're flailing off the wall trying to get that butterfly kick going again. <laughs> so, like, I completely, completely cooked my race. Like, one of the worst blunders I've ever made in a race. And I think I went, like, 47.8 or something. Like, completely stuffed my face. 47.9, yeah. So completely stuffed up my race, cost, cost myself heaps and went 47.92. And I was sitting there after the race, I was like, damn, that was probably, if I had got that turn right, that was probably a world record there tonight. Like, damn it. And I was really pissed off with myself. And my coach uh, at the time, like, gave me one of the biggest roastings. 
Um, I think we had a pretty big argument after that. I don't think we spoke the rest of that meet. I went through the 53 and a couple of relays and stuff and me and my coach weren't even speaking. Um, so it was a really like just this time when I should have been like celebrating everything and being like, oh, well, 47.9, like still a 47. There's only like two or three other people in the world that are dropping these times um, on any sort of regular basis. But it was just nothing was celebrated. Um, and then I came into the Commonwealth Games like, oh, what's my goal here? Like no one else in the Commonwealth is swimming that fast. I think Cam McAvoy was just starting to emerge and he was swimming really well. But um, for me personally, it was a, a kind of felt a little bit of an aimless season. So it, it was a weird one. Uh, it's, funny, it's funny in 2004. You, I'm sorry. You always see people mid quad. They're mid quad and they appear lost. And it's, you, we see this over and over with elite athletes. I remember when we were in mid quad with Phelps once and it seemed like Bob Bowman, his coach was chasing him around deck and they were, they were, kind of, they were so close. They're like father and son. They're so close. And there was a little bit, it seemed kind of snarky between them and there was some drama going on. And like Phelps is just like, he was on, he was still, he would still win some races and then do his interviews and he wasn't really looking at anybody. And I, I do think that this is a, I do think that everybody suffers in the Olympic movement with that period of time, I call it the great Sahara desert. You're out there wandering around and it's like, you don't see an end in sight. It's kind of depressing. I mean, did yeah. you think there yeah, was a depression is. that year? Yeah, I think, look, there was a few things going on. So like I said, I was single, I was living on my own, which I think probably isn't a really healthy thing for an athlete. Um, I was living on my own. I was sort of indulging in the finer things in life. And, um, yeah, I just wasn't that motivated by the Commonwealth Games or the, the PAM packs that were coming up that year. I kind of had one eye on the Olympics. But I also started, like I said, I started having uh, some problems in the relationship between my coach and I Um because I think he was on the really hard grind, like let's keep hitting 47 every day of the week kind of thing. And I was kind of like, why, I guess. But, um, <laughs> and I think, it, you know, it was one thing we all probably have learned out of the back of that is that you've got to ride the ebbs and flows of that Olympic cycle. You can't be up forever. And it's, it was probably a result of London that we came off that and were like, let's just win every single race in the, for the next four years. But it kind of created an unhealthy atmosphere of, um, you know, anything below 47 was a failure. And I, I just was kind of walking this tightrope of perfection and disaster, <laughs> I think, both with the relationships in my life, but also my relationship with swimming and how I felt about um, the sport and, and racing and training. I, I, I appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing that because it's something that, that athletes go through a lot and I don't want to make light of it, but uh, how bad was this roasting? And it was, is it one of the worst you've had? And, Cause I, I don't know about you, but I've, I've, I've had coaches yell at me with spittle flying in my face. Um, you know, yeah. is, is it, was it, was, was it dramatic? 
It was, it was pretty it was pretty big I think the problem with my roastings is that I don't take a roasting lying down so <laughs> I start firing back pretty hard um, and so that escalates things uh, you know I've learned with with age to be a bit more um, gracious and accept authority but um, authority is something that I've definitely always struggled with probably the, the SAS show taught me a lot about um, you know, succumbing to authority and being diligent and stuff like that but um you know being screamed at by um special forces soldiers but yeah at the time you know i was like pretty young and brash so i fired right back and um you know that that was the beginning of probably a little bit of a toxic period for for myself and and my coach brand at the time and there was things going on with our whole squad. Like we went into the Olympic Olympic year with about 10 guys, about two girls in our team. Five of us made that Olympics. So, so Brent was a, you know, a really young new coach and he put five swimmers on an Olympic team for London. And then as happened, some of those guys started to drop off a bit. Some started to, you know, be interested in different things. Um, so the, the squad as a whole was kind of, dissipating a little and it didn't have that same energy and and excitement about it um so it was just it was just a really a really difficult time um and i think one of the problems we have here in australia is that because we don't have a college college racing system um we don't have the support of uh scholarships and stuff around us there's almost a feeling in Australia that if you're not the best in Australia at swimming every year, if you're not winning the Olympics, World Champs, Commonwealth Games, if you're not getting the sponsors, if you're not getting the airtime, it's very hard to make a living. So whilst when you're the best, it's great. If you're not in that top one or two swimmers in the public's mind and, and forefront in the media, then it is really hard to make a living. And there is no support. There is no colleges you don't get free accommodation you don't eat there you don't you you pay for everything um and so there is a feeling in australia that you've got to you've got to be up all the time you've got to be winning everything and that that created for 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 us and and for our squad just a little bit of tension because there was just never any downtime um yeah so but coming back to that roasting yeah it was it was a good one um Probably the silent treatment that followed hurt me worse. Um, that that's something that I, I struggle with more than the confrontation. I kind of uh, I don't mind a bit of confrontation and getting things off my chest, but this this the silent treatment that followed was uh, probably the thing that got under my skin more. I've been hogging him the whole time, Colin. I'm so so sorry, Coleman. <laughs> that's that's fine. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so so you get to you know, you, you have this Commonwealth games trials that is kind of all over the place. Um, and then you get to the calm games and I mean, take us through that meet in terms of where you were at up here. Yeah. So we went for the same theory again, the next, that year going into the Commonwealth games, let's go to Europe and let's race for the major meet. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went to Europe again and, and, started doing a bit of racing but there was also a little bit of traveling and it was at that time I got my first ever injury so I, I, I got this back injury that started flaring up um, and I started struggling with this back injury just with general life like sleeping getting out of bed tying my shoelaces like my back was 
really starting to like stress me out. I raced at the French Open over there and, and still won the French Open, but was like in a bit of pain. When I was coming into this Commonwealth Games, I was like, oh, damn, like I'm like, I'd peaked in January in Australia and it's now August and my back is killing me. You know, is it a product of overworking, racing too much? I don't know. But by the time I got to the Commonwealth Games, I had the one of the physios, you know, there waiting basically after as soon as I got out of bed, I'd go down to the physios, physiotherapist room and, and get sort of mobbed up and stuff and loosened up before I could go to the food hall and then and then go to the pool to, to swim and stuff. So I basically was like limping my way to the finish line that Commonwealth Games. Um, I think partly as a product of being up for so long. Um, and by the time I got to the final of the 100 free, I remember I was I was in the race next to Cam McAvoy. He was swimming really well. He was probably, probably if anything, Cam was the favourite going into that race. And I just said to Brent, my coach before the race, I was like, you know what? Uh, I'm just going to do what I have to do to win here. Like I've swum long enough now. I know how to win a race. I was like, I'm going to sit just on his hip. I'm going to wait till the last 10 metres and I'm just going to beat him. And for Cam, he was a young swimmer. You know, he probably didn't know how to handle that pressure. He's got me sitting on his hip through the whole race. He probably panicked a bit. And I just did what I needed to do to win. And I won that Commonwealth Games. I did exactly what I said to Brent. I would. I think I, it was slow. Like, it was a really slow race. And we kind of got out of the race. I was like, oh, like, yeah, I won. It wasn't, like, the hardest. I didn't even exert myself as much as I had in other races because I just went in there with this mindset I'm just going to do enough to win. And, uh, yeah, we went through that Commonwealth Games. I think I won four medals at that Games. But kind of the biggest thing coming out of that Games was the injury. And we were all starting to, like, stress a little because this was the first big injury I'd had. And then we had about a two- or three-week turnaround straight away to the Pan Pacific Games. And they were here in Australia. Um and so the Australian coaches, and, and I, I kind of got back and my back was getting worse. I came back to Australia and I thought, you know what, I'm probably not going to be ready for this Pan Pacific Games. I mean, Pan Packs were a big thing back in the day, I guess. But for us now here in Australia, they probably don't mean a lot. Probably the same for you guys there in America. It's not really a, a meet we target. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if people talk about how many gold medals Michael Phelps got at Pampax or <laughs> yeah I can see you shaking your head Mel um yeah I've got, I don't I've got history on the I I know the history of this event okay we're going to cut in and just give a quick little history they yeah yeah I'd like to know that it used to be that 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 there was Commonwealth Games was the big thing and that's a big deal for the Commonwealth right that's celebrated. Yeah. Am I, is that correct? It's celebrated. It's a big deal in Australia. Yeah, yeah, particularly here in Australia because we go from being small fish in a big pond at the Olympics to kind of the big dogs at the Commonwealth Games. But it's but it's here's the thing. It's like it's not quite as competitive, but it matters to your country. And in, yeah. the, United, in the United States, we had the Pan American Games, and the Pan American Games is a big deal. <clears throat> Pan American Games is on network television. It was covered like the Olympics, and it's a preview for the upcoming Olympics, right? And uh, But it wasn't very competitive. Pan American Games were not very competitive. So uh, USA Swimming got with Swimming Australia, Swimming Canada, and they created this thing called the Pan Pacific Championships. 
And I went to the very first Pan Pacific Championships. Mm-hmm. And it was, I think that there, whether, if there were 100 people in the stands, I would have been surprised. It was <laughs> just like, it was like getting up and having an inner squad competition with your teammates. It was so yeah. boring. It was terrible. <laughs> and, but it was, the, the motivation was that they owned it. So they could sell it like they had divvied up the sponsorship dollars. And it was um, so the eight, the top two athletes in the United States went to the Pan Pacific Championships and were like, and got to watch the third and fourth swimmers in the country be on national television for the Pan American Games. And we were bitter. We were very bitter, but it evolved slowly. <laughs> Pan Pacific Games are yeah. a little bit better now. But if I remember back in 14, I know that this is a traumatic moment in your life. Again, I'm not trying to make light of what's going on. However, 14 was like it rained the whole time. Remember that? Bucketing rain, like the worst storms you've ever seen. Like, and, and because it was on the Gold Coast in Australia, it's like the sunniest place on the earth. It's like the Miami of Australia. It was an outdoor pool with no covers over anything. There wasn't even like covering for the marshalling area. Like we were standing in pouring rain, getting our names announced before we raced. The crowd was in the rain. Like it was, it was crazy. It was crazy conditions. But um, yeah, for me personally, I guess I, I don't remember the, the Pan Pacific Championships growing up. So it's never been something that has been, you know, a huge focus for me. But, you know, anytime you represent Australia, you're really proud. But going into that, going into that game, so I was kind of, I think in my, in my mind, I was, just thinking like this, I probably shouldn't race. I probably should just look ahead to next year's world championships. But the team, the people on the team were really keen to have me there. The coaches, uh, they needed me for the relays. We, we had a, a good relay team. So I ended up um, going and seeing some specialists and they gave me an epidural um before i raced to to be able to swim so i couldn't feel the pain so that's for those people out there that don't know it's basically a a painkilling injection straight into your spinal cord that makes your body go numb from about the nipples down um so i felt no pain i didn't feel a lot to be honest (laughs) But, but i raced um and it was uh, it's probably a bit of a regret of mine looking back I, I don't know why i was so intent on racing or anybody else was so intent on me racing but i think it's a pretty it was a pretty silly thing to do at the time to get an epidural just to swim at a pan pacific championships is, it, um, is there a chance that here's the thing if you have pain you have pain for a reason the, you mm-hmm. have pain to move away from pain and you're completely numbing it. And for our audience listening, if somebody's young and you don't know what an epidural is, it's what your mother probably got when she was giving birth to you and the pain got to, got to, to be too much. And I've been in that room when my daughter was born and my wife was screaming in pain and they, they tapped her with an epidural and then it just goes numb. That's yeah. some serious pain meds. It's a, you don't, you're not moving away from pain. You're numb. And it, I think that sounds like a, way, a great way to, injure yourself a lot more yeah 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 i felt that and um you know there was probably um some disagreements with people within my team and within the australian team and stuff around how how that was was handled so basically yeah coming off the back of that pan packs i was like man this is 
this is not fun. I'm not enjoying this. Uh, I've been training at the same squad, the same pool for about five years by that time. So as you know, you know, getting up at you know, 5.30 or whatever every morning, going to the same pool, being in the same environment, having the same coach, having the same people in squad, I just decided after that Pacific Championship, if I'm going to make it another two years to these Olympic Games, I've got to have a change. And so I decided that I would move, um, move swimming squads, move coaches, um, and leave uh, leave Brent Best, which was probably the hardest conversation I've ever had with anyone in my life. Um, I remember I met up with him for breakfast and. He started speaking about what we we're going to do next season because he had he had no idea and like it's not something. It was actually something I didn't really discuss with a lot of other people because it was, you know when I make a decision like that I, I'm very intrinsic about um, how I go about things which to sometimes is to my detriment but this one I just I just knew that if I stayed where I was I wasn't mentally going to make it for another two years I was just going to burn out. Um, so yeah, I, I sat with Brent and I said, "Look, I'm I'm going to go to another squad," and that was like devastating for him. It was pretty devastating for me because he was like a father figure in my life. He'd brought me up from um, you know amateur to to world champion, and um, yeah, it was really tough. And then I mean, I guess the, the, the story of my career from there, uh, without being all doom and gloom. <laughs> Coming into the next year in 2015, again, I started swimming pretty well again. I was enjoying myself a bit. Um, and then I have to get a shoulder reconstruction. So I go through that full process of getting a shoulder reconstruction. Um, as you can see, I don't know if you can see in the cameras here, I've still got the big nasty scar on my shoulder. Um, and that kind of, from that point on, I can kind of pinpoint from the time I got that shoulder reconstruction to the time I retired, I was never able to swim the same way in the water. I lost, whether it's strength or power, I'm not sure, but I lost something in the water and, and I wasn't able to regain that. But I think in that back couple of years, you know, there's probably not a heap to talk about, but the thing that I felt like I was able to do was to contribute to that relay team, to contribute to some of those younger 100 freestylers coming through the ranks. And one of the things that I'm really proud of is the succession line of 100-meter freestylers that have come out of Australia um, after my career. Um, it's something that, you know, when I first broke onto the scene, we, we hadn't won an, a, a gold medal at a major meet in the 100 freestyle since Mike Wendon in the 70s, 60s, 70s. Yeah, so um, I was the first one to win a gold medal for Australia in the 100 freestyle in about 40 years. So when I look back on my career, things I'm proud of, the kind of effects that I had on Australian sprinting and the focus that we now have in Australia, because when I was coming through the ranks, coaches would always say to me, uh, in Australia, we have a tradition of 400 freeze, 1500 freeze, you need to do the longest stuff. It's what we're about here in Australia. You know, we have a tradition of it. And I was like, ah, like, it's tough tradition. I want to do fast stuff. Like, why, why are Australians not good at sprinting? Why can Australia not be the best sprinters in the world? And we're almost gun shy of it. And if you saw the coaching methods in Australia, you would understand why. Like, still, 
coaches in Australia just cannot get their head around sprinting and um, anything that's under 80 kilometers a week, they balk at. So <laughs> that's probably one of the things that I'm really, really proud of in the back end of my career is, um, you know, I go to, to, you know, national champs and stuff now in Australia and there's still multiple guys swimming 47. We've now got Kyle Chalmers going toe-to-toe with Caleb Dressel. So it's an exciting time for Australian sprinting and, and um, you know, it's great to, to know that those guys have kind of um, followed in, in my footsteps, you know, in, in some way or another. Was I, I got I to know, was there any sort of metaphorical passing of the torch, even, even if it was just, you know, you having a conversation or some sort of, you know, uh, interaction with Kyle at those Rio games? Yeah, look, I think Kyle is very similar to me. Um, if you ever get a chance to chat with him, he's a pretty confident guy. He's got a bit of bravado. He is he really trusts his race plan and swims a similar race plan to what I used to swim. He he doesn't he's not never first at that fifty meter turn and he backs himself um, that that last fifty meters. Um, in terms of like handover and stuff, like we spoke about, we do do some of those relay camps um, and stuff like that. And you know, I have had. I've had chats with Kyle at times, but I think the great thing that Kyle had at the 2016 Olympics, he was oblivious to all of the pressure, all of the hype. Like he was kicking an AFL football in the marshalling area before the race. Like I was watching him and, you know, I'd, I'd been to an Olympics. I'd been there as, you know, the guy going into the, the final wanting to win. I'd, I'd had the pressure of Australia and I looked at this guy, this 18-year-old guy, his, you know, first time swimming individually in a major meet, and he was just strutting around like it was another day. And I was looking at him going, holy shit, that is the exact same thing I was doing before the 2011 World Championships in Shanghai. Australia was going nuts. There was all this pressure. It's the Blue Ribbon event. And I had no idea what was going on. I was so oblivious to all the pressure and all the hype and I looked at Kyle and I was like, man, this guy is just in the sweet spot. You know, um, you look over to the American team and Nathan Adrian is there, who's probably probably the favorite going into that race. He's got all the pressure in the world on him. He's defending Olympic champion. The American team is looking at him as one of the leaders of the team. And then I look over to our side, to the Australian team, and Kyle's rolling around wrestling people on the ground, laughing and talking. I'm like, damn, this guy is like, <laughs> he's going to do it. <laughs> he's going to do it. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Mel, any, anything to finish up? Oh, I think that you're our favorite guest. <laughs> I do, I do, I do. Yeah, I, I'm getting text messages from, uh, from peers and, and everyone's like, this guy's great. I'm like, he can just, he's a natural storyteller. And it's, uh, I think it's the ease with which you, you, you probably have a little bit of time to look back and be like, hey, this is what happened. This is who I am. This is how it shook out. And uh, Yeah, I think for me personally, it's, it's taken a little bit of time. So that first six months to a year when you get out of the sport, I still had really mixed emotions about, you know, my career and where I finished up and did I achieve everything I could have achieved. And then you sit back and you're like, wow, I was – so lucky to live the life that I lived and to get to being the best in the world in anything, you have to have 
moments of luck along the way. Certain things have to fall into place. Yes, you have to be dedicated. Yes, you have to um, work hard, but you also have to have some natural talent, some natural skill, and you've got to catch some breaks along the way. And I caught some amazing breaks on the way up. I had some really um, influential people come into my life at the perfect times. I had great people around me, great coaches, great staff. And so for that, you know, I'll be forever grateful to the sport of swimming. And regardless of what happened towards that back end of the career with injuries and a little bit of bad luck, I wouldn't have never been in those positions without, um, you know, being very fortunate. So now I look back on swimming um, and any time I talk about swimming, uh, you know, I, I light up. I'm, I'm really happy about my career. And, um, you know, I think given the time away that I've had from the sport now, I'm starting to fall back in love with, with the sport of swimming. You were, the, you were among the smartest men in history when it comes to the Blue Ribbon event, the Hunter Free. Do you have a prediction for the 2021 Hunter Free Olympic final? Yeah, so, so my advice to, to Kyle would be if you're within half a body length at 50 metres, you've got it. But where Dressel wins it is 15, the first 15 metres and the five in, 10 out on the turn. Um, so Kyle, he'll pull away from Kyle on, that, on the turn. There's no doubt. His underwater is insane. But if Kyle's half a body length away from Caleb Dressel going into the wall, it gives him probably three quarters of a body length off the wall, I think he'll win it. Um, the big thing for me is how fast will Caleb Dressel go out that first 50? And you know how, how much wash will Kyle be swimming in? Um, Kyle's done it before under similar circumstances. You know, he definitely wasn't the fastest in Rio over that first 50. So I think, I think he can get it done. You've been listening to the Swim Swam podcast. Stay tuned for new episodes every week. You can take Swim Swam podcast on the go by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. Look for links in the description below and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more videos as well.